3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald. And this week, we have the privilege of another international visitor. Mary Rose Liverani has uh, dropped in. She's based in, in Glasgow, Scotland, having lived in Wollongong for most of her life. And Mary Rose is the author of the 2014 book, Sicily, A Captive Land. So Mary Rose... Uh, Give us an overview of this book and uh, let's see how we can segue from, uh, from Sicily to Scotland and the uh, sovereignty movement that continues to grow there. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, to talk about uh, the Sicily book, it does actually have connections through its uh, rentier. The fact that there's a rentier regime in Sicily that's based entirely on land ownership and on keeping uh, business investment and anything that would regenerate the economy, keeping those things right out of uh, Sicily. But I went there actually to write a few travel pieces. And this was after my husband had died. He had uh, been a Florentine, but he'd always spoken well of the South. So I decided to go to Sicily. And uh, I've spent over a year traveling around, uh, living in different places for weeks at a time. And uh, very quickly, because of, I have an economics background myself, I realised that um, this economy was uh, a subsistence. It's never ever been, so far as I can tell, it's never ever been a proper modern economy in any shape or form. And that's because capital isn't allowed in except through the mafia. And it, when, once it gets into the mafia's hands, <laughs> well, ac- actually, if you speak to any businessmen from the north and, and ask them why they're not down in Sicily, for instance, making maroon glacé from its 3,000-year-old chestnuts, they'll just say, what? Do business with the mafia? And the, now the church actually wants that situation to um, continue because... Once you get capitalism into Sicily, you won't have casual labour in agriculture anymore. And uh, the the change in power would be quite remarkable. So you're saying there that the church really is at the the top of the the tree. And how do they enforce their market power through society? Ooh, (laughs) how do they... Uh, create the market power. Well, yes, I'm, I'm definitely saying that the church is the top of the tree. But mind you, that's a purely natural historical phenomenon because the church came into Italy at the back of the Normans who divided up the land and gave the church a third and devolved onto it uh, the civil power. 
said that they had to set up monasteries in every diocese and administer them. So the church took over that role and uh, it managed to survive nine, uh, well, at least six different invasions and occupying forces. Well, I suppose really if a, a lot of the, the invaders were Catholics themselves, that makes things a bit easier. But, and how it dominates the market, well, it uses the mafia. The mafia are the enforcers. There's no rule of law in Sicily, forget that. It's the mafia. If you were, and what, what kind of law you have is revenge. You know, that um, Francis Bacon once wrote, revenge is a wild kind of justice. Well, it's pretty wild in Sicily, yeah. Oh, give us an idea then of what life was like on the street. What were some of the wild things you saw that you thought, uh, wow, that's, that's a challenge to civilised life? Well, I can think of two things. I was in an internet cafe in a telephone booth, ringing my brother in Australia. And uh, while I was talking to him, I suddenly became aware that um, the owner of the internet cafe who'd been sound asleep across two chairs when I came in and had signalled me to go into the telephone booth, that he was now on his feet with his eyes flaring and two men were in the little uh, room with him and one was pointing at him with his finger and uh, the, the, the atmosphere was very, very hostile. And I said to my brother on the phone, oh my God, the mafia's coming and I think they're looking for the pizza. The tax that the mafia imposes on um, every business in Palermo, 97% of businesses. Now keep in mind, when we talk about rule of law, we do not consider private bodies to have the power to impose income tax. Only the state can do that. So that's one thing that uh, I, I noticed straight away. Merely imposing a tax uh, on, uh, on a, a population practically universally without any legal uh, entitlement to do that is just appalling. Well, that's the first thing. Um, now, the second time I was um, uh, in a flat in Messina and I was sitting on the balcony. Well, I used to sit there to watch uh, primary school children going into their primary school because I enjoyed the, you know, the noise and that kind of thing. One night I came home and I saw a car outside the gate of the primary school scorched black. Now, that's a that's a very, very familiar uh, product in Sicily. Build, apart from the humans that are scorched black, the buildings, and it's very scary looking. If you see a store like David Jones, if you were to see that, come into Pitt Street and see that, with, uh, um, charred, empty, just the skeleton standing, it's quite scary. Well, this black, this car was standing there, a charred skeleton outside the, the um, gate of the school, and I said to the person whose flat I was, uh, who, uh, who's in whose flat I was uh, renting a room, I said, "That's uh, look at that car. That's the mafia, isn't it?" And he said, mm. "Right." The next morning, we got up and discovered that uh, a bit earlier, uh, when all the children were at school. Uh, a man had ridden up on his motorbike to drop off his little child and someone 
had come along and shot him dead. The child was uh, hanging on to his father's uh, waist, and although he wasn't killed himself, uh, he was there when his father spurted blood and, and God knows what else over him. So the car was there, had been there as a message. And very often when you get a message from the Mafia, you don't run away because you feel it's futile. That unless you've got the resources to flee, you, you just wait for the inevitable. We don't often talk about the power of the Catholic Church, but uh, so you're saying that through uh, perhaps not uh, taxation, but through the, the social norms of how society relates to each other and the standards uh, enacted through that community, that's where their control, their control filter was placed? Uh, yes, and there's something else that's really very important. The art, uh, whatever you go in Sicily, people, well, people were saying to me, uh, they'd be lamenting and then saying, but we're all mafia. And I said, but no, we're not all mafia. I said, the mafia are criminals. And would you um, uh, strangle a 12-year-old child and destroy its body in acid bath? Would you do that? And they said, oh, of course not. And I said, well, we're not all mafia, but they are right in saying we are all mafia in one respect, which is that they intermarry. Now, if you come from a mafia family, you might have 12 kids. One of them could be outstandingly bright. And when the priest discovers that, he will, that child will be selected for the ministry. And if you have a very beautiful daughter, she will very likely marry up into the gentry. And so you'll find that when a court trial comes up where mafia <laughs> in the rare occasions when they're brought before the court that uh, you might find that a bishop has turned up to uh, give moral support because the bishop is a brother of the mafioso or his uncle or his cousin or something like that. And not only that, the mafia are very religious. In fact, they're religious in the way that the church approves piety. Piety. The only requirement to get to heaven is to obey all the church regulations. You can lie, murder, and do all, the, do all the rest, but so long as you retain your piety, and the church know that, and they, they keep it well in with mafia. Uh, well, the mafia keep well in with the church, sorry. Well, talking about the church, we can't uh, go past talking about the new pope who has brought a real sense of social justice to uh, his uh, uh, pulpit, and uh, talked up uh, climate change, uh, also uh, inequity. There's, there's a lot of talk uh, happening out of the church. Uh, as someone who's, who's looked at both sides of uh, the public relations machine, that is the Catholic Church, uh, how does that play out, Mary Rose? Well, I can't speak with confidence about that. All I can say is that uh, a Pope doesn't have an easy job. And we only have to look at John Paul to see what happened to him when he decided to reform the church. And if you read uh, David Yallop's books on that, you'll get all the details. But the, the Vatican, people in the Vatican did ask David Yallop to write about it. And it's quite horrifying. It's dangerous as being a Pope. You'll notice that the Pope doesn't live in the Vatican. So well, I'm told that, you know, he's living outside. But many Popes start with good intentions. 
the, the institution itself is so massive. It's so powerful that you have to have a lot of courage. As a matter of fact, um, this is one reason why, although many, many people have written about Sicily, nobody ever uh, refers to the church. In fact, there was one book I came across which didn't even, it was called A Cultural History of Sicily, and it doesn't even have an index reference to the church in it. And I, that, I think that is really weird. But uh, that's, people are terrified of the church. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald and this week we're in discussion with Mary Rose Liverani. We've just discussed her book uh, Sicily, A Captive Land and uh, on uh, that uh, frightening last line about the power of the church. Uh, Mary Rose, let's move on to a good news story and uh, our primary reason for discussion this morning was to, to look at the political movements towards a land value tax in both Australia and Scotland. And as far as we're seeing it, uh, the, you Scottish are uh, really driving things home at the moment. There's a lot of discussion now that Scottish Nationalist Party is in power. Uh, can you give us a precy of what's happening on the ground in terms of the political momentum for deep-seated economic reform? Yes. Well, at the moment, I, I think it's really uh, opportune that we're having an election for the Scottish Parliament next May because it's forcing people who've been interested in the, uh, George, Henry George's theories for uh, decades, it's, well, it's forcing them to really impress upon the Scottish Nationalist Party that at the grassroots level, people do want to see land reform, uh, the land reform uh, tax implemented. We, we in Scotland are at the campaigning level for this uh, economic reform, the, the substitution of economic rent for taxes. I mean, that's powerful. The, the, the logic of doing this is unassailable. I don't think anybody has been able to sit down and say, there's a big argument against this. And if you can, if you can think of it, you should um, write it down and uh, send it to uh, the Scottish uh, Land Reform Institute and tell them that you've come up with something logical against it. Really, uh, there is nothing. And so what we are interested in at the moment is devising the best strategy to familiarise people with it and make them see how it's vitally important to force a mandate on the SNP. And I think that is actually underway because the SNP's uh, national conference quite just a few weeks ago really the SNP thought they had a nice tidy little program set up for themselves and uh, it was demolished because suddenly out of nowhere it seemed uh, land reform movement people stood up and started upbraiding the SNP for not having the bottle as someone put it to go ahead with this reform and I think the SNP are thinking about that one, but where it's taking them, I don't quite know. And we won't know that till the election. So much of this passion for land reform in Scotland has been aroused by the 
the sovereignty movement that narrowly got defeated was it last year and uh, through that whole process the role of the the barons the the land lords of Scotland and their uh, ownership advantages really came to the fore can you spell out some of those uh, advantages these barons have how much land do they own and you know, how do the everyday person in Scotland really feel about that? Because it sounds like it's something that was not really uh, well known before uh, recent years. Yes, you're quite right about that, that, uh, that the Scots... Well, it's not that it wasn't known, but uh, it seemed to be an actual circumstance that had been there since the beginning of time. Nobody ever looks at, you know, how, how this came into being. And um, I mean, Foucault's a person who made popular the idea that anything that's got a beginning must have an end. And uh, even the Catholic Church has had a beginning. But this is something that is, I think it raises the hopes of people in Scotland that the, the, the land owned by the, the barons, let me see, uh, 7% of the people own 84% of the land. And I can tell you what that, how that works out in practice. I was walking o- along a canal uh, one night and I saw that uh, flats had been taken down and new flats were going up instead. Well, the f- there was a mark where you could see that the flats had been taken down where a, f- a couple of metres away from the canal water and the new ones were only about a foot away from the canal water. So they were trying to get a bit of land by bringing the new flats closer to the water. That's not a good idea in Scotland when you get torrential rain. I can't think what will happen when... I don't quite know what's how they're going to protect those flats, but that's desperation. And, um, I mean, obviously, if you think of someone who's... Uh, the Duke of Buccleuch is supposed to be the biggest landowner in the whole of Europe. And I expect um, Scotland, the Scottish land, is the biggest part of his holdings. But uh, the, the thing is, it's very difficult to persuade people that there's no natural right to own land. In fact, that land is a natural resource. That's what uh, is being dinned in to people now, today. The land is a natural resource like the sea, the sky, the air, the oxygen. When a human being's born, they have to stand on, they have to have a little place to put their feet on the land. They have to have something to, a bit of land to produce food to eat, to have a shelter over their head, those basic things. And when someone else monopolises the the over 600,000 acres of land in a tiny country. That's a lot. But um, Scottish landlords haven't had that land. They haven't been like uh, the English landlords. I mean, the Highland chieftains, they weren't owners of land. Nobody owned the land in the Highlands. And uh, they, they had authority, but it came from the natural leadership of and not from either wealth. But, nonetheless, when we signed the Union in 1707, the English then, uh, obviously, the first thing you do when you go into a country and you're a colonizer is you look for collaborators and you offer them treats to assist you. 
and lands of Street. That so that's they got their land and they gave their loyalty to the English crown. And now they've had this land for 300 years because don't forget that England hasn't been invaded since 1066. And whereas in other countries you can easily lose your land when a conqueror comes in, nobody's lost their land in Britain that way. So they're very happily entrenched. And, uh, and then, of course, the fact that the law is still adheres to primogenitor and entailment. You're not allowed to make these holdings smaller. And the reason for that is that if you have enormous acres of land, people revere you, they bow down to you, land's weighty. It makes a lot more impact on people than savings in the bank or shareholdings. When you go up and you see uh, all these fields, the, the birds, the, the water with the, the fish in it, which doesn't belong to you either, fish in the ocean doesn't belong to anyone else here in, except the land, uh, except the uh, landlords. Well, uh, that's the reason. They wouldn't feel the same if they lost all their land, even if you gave them money in the bank for it. Wouldn't be the same. And uh, so we're going to have a big struggle with the landlord. But of course, what we have to impress on them is that the land is not being expropriated. They're just going to pay economic rent. Rent that comes to you while you're sleeping. You don't lift your finger to get it. But outside, there are people working all around your land in ways that will raise the value of it without your having to do a thing. That's the only thing they're going to lose. So, they don't... They, their land's not going to be expropriated. It's not like, you know... It's not that kind of revolution at all. And in fact, I think the descendants will come to see that it's the right thing to do. And in fact, life gets better for everybody. We're talking to author Mary Rose Laniari about uh, the situation in Scotland where some 750 acres of the nation are held in tax havens by a global untraceable elite. And we heard there that 7% of the population owns 84% of the land. And Nikki Loudon McCrimmon from the Scottish National Party um, stood up at that uh, recent land reform conference and made a real fuss about the fact they're not being radical enough with their land reform. So let's go back to the interview with Mary Rose. And globally, I mean, why should global activities be global only for uh, pharmacy company, pharmaceutical companies and people like that? They should be global for what we're doing just now. I've learned a lot in a couple of hours that I've been here and I'm hoping to learn a lot more and, and take it all back to uh, Scotland with me and so that we can really uh, step up uh, the momentum. And it's not a campaign, it's a multi-campaign because many, many groups in Scotland are working for this. Uh, And so we've got to keep pushing because we've had this other system for so long and this question of progress and poverty has to be answered. Many people have asked it. We know actually what causes it, but now we have to persuade people right at ground level that this, this, the best way forward for them in particular is to 
um, bring land back into perspective. It's been totally lost that. Well, what a good way to end. Uh, thanks, Mary Rose. Uh, we could keep talking, uh, but that's our agenda to bring land back into focus as the central tenant of the potential of a community and uh, the, the spoils that flow from that community activity at present are unfortunately hoovered up by those who own the prime locations. So we're talking about rebalancing that playing ground and that is the challenge of the ages is to try and look beyond the sharing economy, uh, look beyond you know all of these community garden movements and all we need to do is grow our own food. Well unfortunately uh, so many of these reforms are, have nice intentions but bad outcomes according to uh, uh, the judge of time as uh, has been passed down from generation to generation through this land reform movement. So Mary Rose, uh, finishing off, um, what do you hope to see in Scotland over the next uh, six, seven months as this upcoming uh, Scottish election takes shape? Well, I would like to think that the Scottish Nationalist Party will put aside its reservations. We don't know what these reservations are, frankly. They haven't spoken about, I think they're uh, playing at cagey. Uh, they don't want to come out and they don't trust enough to come out and see what it is that's bothering them. And what's being said to them now is that if they don't uh, uh, commit themselves to it at the election, then there'll be another miraculous, um, phenomenal swing uh, away from them. And don't forget that hundreds of thousands of people uh, have given them support since the referendum. There'll be a landslide. I mean, the media is forecasting a landslide victory for them, but this may not transpire if they don't. Uh, um, I, I'm hoping they will because we like them. I mean, everybody loves Nicola. We like the SNP. We don't want them to disappoint us. And all I'm hoping is that if they do. If they, if they, well, if they don't, if they don't come out and see what they're going to do, then we're going to swing over to Andy Whiteman and the Greens, and um, on the basis that they will definitely do everything that they can to uh, bring uh, the land value uh, tax system, economic rent system, economic rent system uh, into operation. That's what I hope, and I think it'll be such an exciting world to live in when it happens. It'll be just amazing. It's not going to be same old, same old all the time. So to put that in in perspective, there was a um, our land. Uh, event recently held by the Scottish Nationalist Party and as you were saying earlier they had this rather tidy agenda they put forward and then the questions from the floor were so pointed and so to the point about this level of inequity this natural advantage that land barons hold that it really put them on notice that they need to um, look more deeply uh, sovereignty is not enough uh, as, a, as a tagline we need to actually have ownership of our land um, uh, as part of the commonwealth 
And so from what we saw in the press here, uh, this real groundswell is building up that uh, it's time we really dealt with this land ownership issue and uh, future generations had, uh, you know, the sort of opportunity uh, uh, older generations were brought up to believe in. Well, I think you've <laughs> concluded this uh, chat and in exactly the way I would like you to. So that was Mary Rose Lanieri discussing the battle of the ages for deep-seated land reform and Nicky Loudon McCrimmon, the SNP MP, summed it up nicely where he says in his critique of his own party, does radical land reform leave tenant farmers with no right to buy, no security of tenure? Farmers who have invested in that land work for that work that land for generations. We have kids in the local school who contribute to local economies being told your tenancy's up. Find somewhere else to live, work, raise a family. No, it doesn't, and we have the power to change that now. So there are just so many stories coming through with the call for land reform as global cities around the planet face the onslaught of speculative capital jacking up prices uh, in Melbourne some 14%, Sydney 26%, San Francisco similar and you know the story. Uh, around the world the same pressures continue because investors get the tax incentives and the people are left uh, begging with the bank. So uh, it's just not fair, it's got to change. Get over to earthsharing.org.au, earthsharing.org.au for the show notes and head on over to prosper.org.au for the Hansard transcript of my recent parliamentary select committee uh, presentation. All right, well, stay tuned for the boldness coming up very, very soon. Sorry to blame. people out there in the radio world show some love to 3CR you know and if you're listening and enjoying the programs here man great radio station it is how how it was built by community and the community ownership and that's a powerful thing to have within community so show some love